When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 138th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the United States of America, Gary Action Jackson. And we appreciate everybody who tuned in last week to our talk on ACDHC at 50 with the author of that amazing book, Martin Popoff, our fellow Pantheon podcast brother, who has written, what, 120 books? Something crazy like that. But this one's great. Beautiful coffee table book. 50 stories of the band over their time. Amazing pictures. And he's just a a fun guy to talk to. Fountain of knowledge. Good guy, Martin Popoff. You should definitely check out his History in Five Songs podcast. And this week, we keep the train rolling with the hard rock and heavy metal. As an amazing anniversary is upon us, folks, it's the 40th anniversary of Metallica's Kill 'Em All, their debut album on Megaforce Records that came out July 25th, 1983. And without a lot of fanfare, right? That wasn't on MTV. They famously didn't do videos back then, Metallica. And it's not like MTV probably would have put it up next to Duran Duran or Men at Work or Lionel Richie or Michael Jackson or whatever we were so into in 1983. Being a kid from the suburbs, I had no idea about Metallica. None. It wasn't until they did the one video, I was still watching MTV quite a bit, and I was like, oh, look at these guys. They're really, really heavy. Uh, i got to learn a little bit more about them. Not too long after that, of course, the Black Album came out and they became the biggest band in the world and haven't really relinquished that much, I would say, uh, over the last 30 or so years. But because we didn't know much about it back then, we didn't grow up on Metallica the way some people did, we needed to enlist some help to go over this classic record, and we got somebody awesome for you today. It's Jay Scott from The Hook Rocks, a great podcast, another great Pantheon podcast brother of ours, and he's been doing this for a long time. He's been doing it for over four years, hundreds of episodes. He has great guests, great artists on there, great conversations about rock music in general. And he's been nice enough to have me on his show a couple times. So we thought we'd enlist Jay to come on and talk to us about Metallica because he had older brothers and friends in his neighborhood who got him into Metallica in the early days, in the kill em all, ride the lightning days. And so he's going to tell us some about his experience growing up with Metallica. And of course, we're going to go track by track and talk about the sonic quality and importance of this album in the Metallica catalog. 
But first, hey, you know me, we've got a little bit of business to cover here. As always, we mentioned we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Network of about 100 shows, all music related. Not all hard rock or rock and roll, so there's something out there for everybody. And you can check out more at PantheonPodcast.com or follow them at Pantheon Pods. And of course, we got to mention our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Based in the UK, guys, Rare Vinyl's been in business 40 years. They have over a quarter million items in stock, and they ship everywhere around the world. With five stars from Trustpilot, you can know that if you're getting something from them, it's quality. So go to the website, RareVinyl.com. Use the code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, and you can save 10% off your orders. So whether it's some kind of sweet Metallica item that you can only find in Europe and you want it shipped here to the United States, or maybe you just want to get the latest album on LP, go to rarevinyl.com. There's something there you're going to love. Whether it's new or it's classic, it's in mint condition, it's a first edition, it's a poster, it's a point-of-sale item from a record store you remember as a kid, go to rarevinyl.com. Use code UGLY. It'll save you 10%, and that benefits our show. We appreciate you doing that. Now, back to Metallica. Yeah, I've seen Metallica, what, five or six times now? Over the last 30 years, they always deliver live. And you got to look at Kill 'Em All as this is really, truly the beginning. Still a lot of influence from Dave Mustaine, even though he may not have recorded the stuff on the album. He'd written a lot of those songs. He played a lot of them live. And so we have to talk about Dave and his role in Metallica's Rise and Rise and Rise. Well, this is a long one. Look, once we get Jay on, once there's three of us talking, there's a lot less lull in the conversation, right? Everybody's got something to say. We went so long, Jackson had to check out just a little bit early. That's okay. We're going to have a lot of fun here. This is me and Jackson with Jay from the Hook Rocks talking about Metallica's first album, Kill 'Em All As It Turns 40, right here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Jay Scott, the legendary Jay Scott from the Hook Rocks. What's up, buddy? How oh, are I'm you? Good. I'm good. I'm meeting my uh, sausage McMuffin right now. <laughs> it's, 
It's only noon here in Chicago. I'm eating breakfast. Yeah, that's all good. I got to introduce you to Action Jackson there in South Georgia. Carl nice Weathers, you. what's going on, man? <laughs> not too much, not too much. Thank you so much for being with us. What's happening? Here we are, right? Here we are. Here to celebrate Kill 'em All as it turns 40, which is hard to believe. But then I, I feel like I say that every week. We're always doing something that's <laughs> turning 40 or 50 or something. It's like, yeah. can you believe Journey's Frontiers is 40? Like, yeah, well, I guess it is, you know. Remember that cheesy video with Separate Ways? Yeah, it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's gold. <laughs> Nothing better than Air Keyboard. Yeah, man. Air Keyboard and like the, the sleeveless muscle shirt. <laughs> or, uh, the Ocean Pacific muscle shirt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was classic. How about them, like right now, present day? Is there a more dysfunctional band? I know. The, in, the, the, well, they make, in music right now? They make the Eagles look like best friends. Jesus. <laughs> and that went oh, down the toilet quick too that was like one day of you know what now he's out of the band i know well far be it for me to comment on something i know nothing about but but <laughs> when you look at the wife the wife of jonathan kane and you look at the wife of neil sean oh my maybe god that has something to do with it <laughs> absolutely man i mean his look i mean look, i know she i was thinking about this yesterday she's hot and everything but she's nuts, man. I mean, come on, dude. I, you know, she crowds the White House. She's a national security risk, man. I mean, I was watching a video clip of her. She's one of those evangelists that tells you to send you her pay your your paycheck. Oh, yeah. She's one of those. And uh <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, and, and Neil Sean's wife is is not all there either. No, no. She's, like I said, she's beautiful and all, but she's yeah. you know. She's insane, and and, and well, yeah, crashed the White House. Paul yeah. White, yeah, Paul White was was Trump's advisor. So there's right. both. There, there, there's some. There's some. Uh, there is some craziness, and I think when you look at like, there's probably already friction already. But when you look at those two being in now the the realm of Journey, right? Uh, I think that has a lot to do with why Journey is complete drama right now. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Did yeah. you talk about Journey though? Because we're going to, obviously we're going to talk about Kill 'Em All coming out in 1983, and I want to get how you came to Kill 'Em All, and I don't know if you knew about it in '83 or not. I mean, I think they said by 1984 it had sold 60,000 copies. Jackson and I are just a little bit younger than you. We were 10 in 1983, so our little brains weren't ready for Metallica at this point, you know. And and we got our music basically from MTV, and who was all over MTV in 1983 it was Men at Work. Duran Duran, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie. I mean, these are the big selling albums of 1983. And then you look at the rock side. Yeah, Journey hit it big with Frontiers. And on the hard rock side, eventually in 1983, an album that we did, Metal Health by Quiet Riot, would be become the first heavy metal record to hit number one. But like Peace of Mind by Iron Maiden, although it hit big with the metal crowd, it didn't have widespread appeal. It wasn't all over MTV or anything like that. Dio's first album, Holy Diver, it kind of, again, good with the metal crowd, good with the hard rock crowd, got maybe a little bit of MTV time but not a ton. So like, that's where hard rock was kind of going. Def Leppard's obviously huge with Pyromania. The Scorpions are doing well, but because Metallica famously did not do videos and MTV probably wouldn't have put them on anyway, except for maybe three o'clock in the morning or something like that. And these aren't like suburban friendly tunes that they're cranking out here. I mean, eventually the world came to them, but in 1983, we're almost ready for it, man. That is such an interesting topic when it comes to Metallica, how they rose from where they came from. 
And you were absolutely right, Mac. 1983, I had no clue about Metallica. I had no idea who Metallica was. And I think for the most part, the majority of teens and kids did not know either who they were. And I think, and I'm going to circle back with this, the, the decline of 80s rock as we knew it and the the pushback in the early 90s mm-hmm. started in 1983 with Metallica, although we didn't know it. Okay. Okay. And what I mean by that is we all knew what ha- happened with 80s rock, right? Pretty much the big moment that came was the Us Festival that we just celebrated the 40th anniversary. Okay. That was really what put that music on the map with teenagers across the country because when we looked and watched those that video or that that performance that day we saw seas of people and we saw a sea of young people and we heard them on rock radio and if you were lucky enough to have a radio station that played that stuff in the market you lived in Mm -hmm. you were well aware of who the bands were and of course, when you went to the grocery store or wherever and you and you read Hit Parader and Circus Magazine, you saw pictures of these bands, but you never saw them perform right until that moment. And that's when, like myself with my brother that day and teens across the country who weren't there were locked in on that. And it was a very different time in rock music, right? The glam had not hit yet. Right. If you look at the bands that were coming up prior to that, obviously Van Halen was the big band. You right, know, they yes. were they were the the at the top of the mountain at that time, but they weren't essentially glam. They kind of had this party feel good atmosphere, and the and their look really matched what their music was. Absolutely. And you mentioned like Maiden, who was popular with the metal crowd. I still remember sitting in my neighbor's house. And his older brother had like this, one of those neon number of the beast signs that when you turned off the light, it would glow, you know, nice. it was pretty intense. But again, that was like music for the burnouts, which exactly. was priest <laughs> and Ozzy. You know, that was the bad kids on the block that listened to that, you know, right. which kids would get bad grades. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which amazes me why or how Maiden is more popular now than they have ever been. Okay. And Ozzy Osbourne became this pop culture icon when I had to covert op smuggle those records into my <laughs> house growing up at, at, in a Catholic household, going to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So there was a danger to hard rock and what was considered heavy metal at the time. I mean, Journey was considered heavy metal at the time. You know, it's how funny that is. But you had these men, you had Scorpions, you know, with the zoo and Blackout and all that kind of stuff. And it was very like, mysterious and it was it it was really kind of like what is all this stuff about and metallica started in 1983 no one heard of metallica in 1983 no no one it wasn't on anyone's radar unless you were local or unless somehow some way you got like this underground record so how i how i point to that moment being the eventual decline as after the us festival we saw Motley Crue, we saw Rat, Quiet Riot, Def Leppard, Van Halen continued to have all these success. All those bands on that bill of the Us Festival had huge albums that came out after that performance. Right. Probably their album, 84 was the biggest album for Van Halen. Love at First Sting was the biggest album for Scorpions, and so on. Triumph, Ozzy. Well, Ozzy, you know. Out of the cellar, yeah. All those. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, and then, of course, you know, Motley Crue would shout the devil. 
But that really took off with MTV. MTV married that genre of music. And then it started to just break open. And now you saw the glam. You saw the makeup, especially with Theater of Pain, with Motley Crue. When you look at that back album cover and Vince Neil's got that garter belt on right? and it's all glammed up. And then they had the power ballad, Home Sweet Home. And everyone right. started to have power ballad because the MTV request hour, that was number one for months, if you remember. Oh, yeah. And the glamis with them poison and and all these other bands on jovi he's a pretty boy bon you know? yeah right so then metallica is starting to rise through all this becoming more popular by the day slowly right what's the old what's the term what rises fast falls fast so build it slow and steady which is what metallica really did it was slow and steady capturing one fan at a time and kill em all really didn't connect with people until whiplash started to get played on rock radio in like the midnight hours right that right. was when it was, it was played and then ride the lightning came out and of course before that you had like am i evil which piqued a lot of curiosity like what is this, this is so different than what i'm used to hearing our minds and brains were not trained to hear this music yet because it was completely different than anything so then ride the lightning came out and that had like for whom the bell toes and all this stuff and then the big one was master of puppets but there was still this mystery because they didn't make any videos in the age of video so they That's were right. like this band that was like for the fans they're for us man they're they're not selling out they're doing all the stuff and then one came out with injustice for all in 1988 or 89 they were on the monsters of rock tour with van halen scorpions Dokken. And they were the second band on the bill after Kingdom Come. Right. But everybody likes to fault Nirvana as killing that glam era of rock. And it wasn't. It was Metallica. And it started in 1983 because if you look at the incline of their popularity with, with, with one and then it hit with the Black Album, it was the anti-glam rock. It was what people were familiar with. Nirvana people weren't familiar with. Metallica was because you saw the burnouts, quote unquote, wearing the Metallica metal up your ass shirts and right. the lightning shirts. And then when it hit MTV, it became acceptable for everyone that was into the poisons and all that stuff to start to go towards Metallica. And then, of course, with the Black Album, it blew up. And that was the death knell of, of glam rock. Well, that's a lot to take in there, Jay. What do you think <laughs> about all that, Jackson? I mean, I, I think it's I think it's right on. You know, you were talking about the Black Album. It was funny when those videos came out, they were kind of stylized. Like they had, they were all in all black. You know, they kind of had their look they were going for. If you go back and look at the early promo pictures from the band, they're just straight up, just dirtbag looking guys. Like they have no, they're just wearing old t-shirts and jeans and they were burnout. sneakers. Yeah, they, yeah. So I think that was, I think that was it. They look like a band that you could be in. They didn't have expensive clothes. They weren't really super good looking guys. They played fast and they played loud. And yeah, you're right. They were the anti glam metal. They were they were a real deal. And yeah, something like you you since you couldn't hear it on the radio, if you could get your hands on it, you were automatically that much cooler. Right. And there was a sense of mystery too, or, or mm -hmm. a mysterious element with them because they were so like evil sounding yeah <laughs> I mean, especially with the early stuff when you listen to creeping death and you listen and we're talking about kill them all you listen to motor breath phantom lord you know how fast is metal militia i'm like jesus can they play that without yeah. cocaine that's unbelievable <laughs> yeah, hit the lights you know i mean opening up a record with hit the lights and you know 
it wasn't until really ride the lightning that you went back to kill them all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like shout the devil. You went back and listened to too fast for love. It was kind of, and that was kind of a thing back then with a lot of bands who had their debut album that didn't really connect or resonate with the crowd yet. And then they released another album, but ride the lightning really was what launched master of puppets. And then when you heard master of puppets, you were like, Holy cow, this is, this is incredible. But when you're hearing master of puppets or battery, on the radio at that time versus, you know, nothing but a good time or, right. you know, girls, girls, girls. It was Living so rare. Yeah. But a lot of people were like still trying to train their brain as to what this was. And then one came out with this, with this dark, mysterious video. And then it all came together with the blackout. But again, the death of glam rock in the 80s started in 1983 because it was, in my opinion, it wasn't Nirvana. It wasn't grunge. It was Metallica. That did it, and I'm thinking you're with you. I'm with you there, you know. But then, to me, because you're right, everybody points to Nirvana. Oh, once Nirvana hit, it was over. I'm like, well, that's when it was really over. That's when the record companies kind of gone and said, "Oh, all the disaffected kids want this instead." But to me, because you said it was the uh, 1983, but 93 was when it was really starting to take off for glam rock, you know. And then by 87, 88. When hysteria comes out and it's the biggest thing in the whole world and and you know it, motley crew is everywhere and all that when metallica comes out with one and they're all dressed in black and you have this scary video about a guy who you know lost everything in war and just wants the doctors to kill him like that you don't put that on next to living on a prayer you know something like that it, it scared exactly. people but it makes you realize you're right so it started the foundation of it started in 83 but that's just like when the cracks started to come in the basement. We Nobody saw it. Nobody knew it was down there because we're up on the third floor party and we don't know what's going on in the basement down there. So you're right. But it, it, it took until 88 for us to find, because honestly, that's the first time I'd ever heard of Metallica. When I was like, oh, we're going to play this new video by one, their first video ever. I was like, oh, okay, well, I like Metal Axe. You know, yeah, I like Def Leppard. I like this, right? I'm like, what is that? Oh my God. <laughs> They're fast as hell. They're heavy as hell. They're kind of scary. They're sneering at you. They're not like smiling, like, hey, girls, come on backstage. They're like, we're going to murder everybody. You know, like, whoa, that's, but I feel like there's songs, people can relate to a lot of the stuff better. It's easy to relate to a party when you're in a good mood, but the rest of your life, when you're slogging through life and it's hard and you have bad things happen to you, I feel like it's easier to relate to some of these, maybe not all the stuff about war, but I feel like they're a lot more relatable than maybe they would come off as in 1983 if this is the first time you ever heard them. Yeah, exactly. I think it may not have produced the immediate immediate change, but what it did was it what it, it whetted the appetite of the young kids listening that when grunge came out, there was there was already the prep work had already been done. Yeah. Right. And you think about how even how things changed in terms of people accepting music. One of the bands that benefited from that one video in 1988 was Queensryche. Queensryche mm. couldn't get a sniff before that, before before Operation Mindcrime. I mean, everybody knew how great Queensryche was, but they were a, you know, an 1800, 2000-seater band, you know, that would not, they wouldn't be playing arenas or anything like that. But without And Justice for All, Operation Mindcrime doesn't have its popularity. Because again, it was more mysterious. It was different, you know. And then you started to see bands like Anthrax. You started to see bands like like uh, Megadeth, you know, who we're going to talk about, you know, Dave Mustaine and his impact to kill them all. Obviously. But that really 
it made all that kind of stuff acceptable because the brains, the minds of the youth at that time were starting to train themselves to listen, you know, because it's all about your ear and how about you absorb. And when you're hearing power ballads and party good time songs, and like you said, watching the videos of chicks, scantily clad women, you know, and backstage and all that, it's like you come to expect that. The problem was, is that those rock bands didn't adapt. When they saw Metallica and Queensryche and all these bands, they they doubled down on it. And then I talked about that circus magazine, that hip parader magazine that we used to read when we would go to the grocery stores, their moms were shopping. It used to be you'd hear the band on the radio and then you'd see them in the magazine. And I've yep. mentioned this before on my podcast. You started to see pictures of bands that you had no idea who they were. You never heard them, but because they looked pretty. And they look good. They were getting signed to deals, but the music sucks. I mean, we're talking bands like Hurricane Alice and Kitten Claws or whatever. Bang Tango. <laughs> yeah, like these bands that were just forgettable. And one of the most important quotes of someone who was at the tail end of that era is by Butch Walker, one of my favorites. Great producer in Nashville. Uh, he's produced everyone from Keith Urban to Pink, but he's also got his solo stuff. And he's been able to reinvent himself. And the reason why he says is because all the crap, I'm paraphrasing here, but all the crap that came out at the end of that era, he was part of, and he was forgettable. And because he was forgettable, he was able to go and reinvent himself. But if you were in a great white, if you were in some of these other bands, you couldn't, you were locked in because you doubled down on the glam when you should have been finding a way to adapt to what was rising after you they then they tried to adapt after you know everyone started to release their grunge type album like motley Crue's self-titled album in 94 right. great album but it was too late yeah, too, too, really late. too late yeah. yeah they were typecast so to speak mm. tell them all is is really when you look at it and, and i love the album i love that we're talking about it today is the core of that change is where it began in my opinion yeah, I think you're right. And then later in the 80s, once you saw Metallica starting to rise up from Justice for All, then you got to see Alice Cooper and Ozzy starting to come back like, oh, you like black macabre kind of stuff? Well, that's kind of what we do. Let's jump on and, and we can show you that we can still do that, too. And, you know, Priest did it just right, because you look at Turbo. You know, some of that stuff on Turbo, no one calls that their favorite Priest. Although Priest Live came out after that, and I do like that. That was actually, it was released, I think, today's June 21st. I think it was 37 years ago today that it was released. But uh, but anyway, I like that. But, you know, and the videos, the clothes they were wearing, you know, it kind of had that ZZ Top chug on it. It wasn't that great. But then it comes to ram it down, and certainly Painkiller. Painkiller is, is them going in the right direction like okay we get it you know we we're going to evolve but you're right a lot of the other bands are like ah oh, no we're going to keep playing our arenas we got nothing to worry about you know 1993 is not going to see all of us you know on the state fair circuit <laughs> or anything like that you know uh, if that, if yeah that. well those yeah. paid well <laughs> they, they wouldn't even make it there right <laughs> they're at they're at the rib fest circus more like it you know <laughs> Hi, this is Mick Wall, and you are listening to the ugly American werewolf in London. Yeah. Well, now, Jackson, you introduced me more to their back catalog when we were in college. You introduced me to Ride the Lightning, and we saw them, Jay, on the Black Album tour together when we lived together in college in 1993. So that was the first time that we saw them. And obviously, the Black Album blew up those two years, three years, whatever it was going. But Jackson, how did you find 
the back catalog. I mean, did you get to one and then you're like, oh, I got to see what else they got? Correct. Yeah, because I had seen once I heard Injustice, I had seen people with like tapes of of Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning. And a friend of mine, he's like, if you like that, here I'm going to gift you a bootleg of you know the not a bootleg but a copy of Ride the Lightning. And I listened to that back to front. I can still listen to that the entire way through. And it's interesting when you listen to that record and then this one, Kill 'Em All. The, the leaps and bounds that they went through, not only with songwriting, but also with production, too. Well, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that, because I know they didn't have any kind of budget at all. What was like $15,000 <laughs> or something like that to, to make it? James' vocals are, mm, they could sound better. And he wasn't as good a singer then. I just have to say, now his power and his voice is is pure metal majesty, man. He knows what to do with his voice. He knows how to command the stage with it. A little bit of shrieking. It, it's a little tinny on some of these songs. Uh, I mean, would you guys agree with me there? It's, it's not quite the James we've come to know and love. Yeah, I think at the time he was, I, was he 21 yet? He was um, around that, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. Real. So he probably didn't have any vocal training at that time. He probably was just a young kid singing and kind of, you know, maybe had a maybe a lesson here and there, but it was more more the growl at that time, and it was more about just the the attitude. And you know, you look at a lot of singers early on in their careers. You know, you look at Paul Stanley, you look at some of these other singers that change the way they deliver a note and sing a note, how they use their diaphragm more. And a lot of them sing in the beginning from their neck up, right? It all comes from their neck; it doesn't really come from anything else. And, you know, I think that's kind of why you saw the difference in the evolution of his voice. But, you know, with the budget 15000 and you look at when this finally hit the Billboard charts, it wasn't until years later. Right. And that was because of Master of Puppets. All, was Master of Puppets and all mm-hmm. the popularity with that. Because then people went back and started to rediscover. I was was lucky enough to live in a neighborhood with kids my age who had older brothers who were burnouts. <laughs> and... <laughs> I was, I, I don't remember Kill 'em All so much, but I remember Ride the Lightning. And I do remember the album cover of Kill 'em All. I remember Creeping Death and I remember Whiplash. And then I remember some stuff that they did that I, well, I don't believe was on an album, which was Blitzrig, mm-hmm. um, which was a cover of the new wave of British heavy metal, which we got to get into because this album is a direct in, you know, a result of the influence of new wave of British heavy metal. Oh, yeah. And Am I Evil, which is the old Diamond Head cover. Mm-hmm. So I remember hearing Whiplash, and I was kind of like, oh, yeah, it's kind of different. But then I remember hearing Am I Evil, and of course, being in Catholic school at that age, <laughs> I was like, ooh, this is scandalous. This is, <laughs> what is this? You know. And then you started to see the burnouts you know, wearing the Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, or Metallica shirts. That was like on rotation. Once in a while, you'd see like a Exodus shirt or like a... Uh, you know, an anthrax or an Aussie, but it was mostly made in priest Metallica. And they were always had black jeans on or regular jeans with white gym shoes and the jean jacket with the back patches and the buttons and the little patches on the side. <laughs> and when I would go to my friend's house to listen, we, would, you know, of course, sneak in the older brother's room when they were out and just <laughs> listen to Metallica. And Again, my mind still was kind of confused because I was used to hearing melody. Right. And there really wasn't a lot of melody in Kill 'em All or, you know, in this thrash metal. Really wasn't. I mean, 
I, the, there was melody, but it was kind of like you really had to listen for it. And it really wasn't until the Black Album that they really started to corral the melody of a song. But yeah, it was just, I remember the early days of Metallica, but again, it was very, it wasn't constant. It was whenever I could listen to it, we did, but it wasn't ever on radio. And then there was a radio station in Chicago called WVVX 103.1 which was on at eight o'clock or seven o'clock at night. And during the day, it was a Spanish station. And then at night, it would turn over to a metal station. And this was like in 1986. So I was 11 in 1986. And I remember they world because they had a good relationship with the guys in Metallica. Mm. And they world premiered Master of Puppets one night during the week. And I remember literally sitting on my bed because I had a Sanyo dual cassette speaker with a turntable and speakers on the side i've saved up my paper out money and i wanted to get so i got that so i'm listening to wvbx rpm 103.1 the world premiering master of puppets and i remember just just staring at the radio for over an hour like not moving just going what what is this like what is going on with my brain with how i'm absorbing this and then i was kind of sold after that so but then you went back and you really started to listen to the oldest stuff. And then you really start to appreciate Kill em All mm. and how dangerous that album was. And I think the rawness, more so than any other album that they have, the rawness on Kill em All is what makes that separate from the other albums. Because those these are kids, man. Kirk Hammett, I think, was 19. Lars Ulrich, I think, was not even 21 yet. And James, I'm looking it up. James, you mentioned, was he even 20 years old? His birthday is August 3rd, 1963. So when they were recording this, he was a teenager. Yeah. Uh, so you this know, was which is crazy. Street. This was street. This was raw. This was a middle finger to everything that was going on. This was their space. And to re- think about the importance and the significant and just what was happening they released an album like this that was so different than anything that was coming out and they did it and they didn't care and that is the genesis of metallica right there that is you know who gives a fuck let's that's just who do they it. are yeah that's right and, and then you hear the uh you hear the backstory about you know how they were in uh, on the west coast I think it was Lars got, he knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who said, Hey, I'll get you one song on a compilation record. So they, no, they ma- mass- up, no massacre. Yeah. yeah. They pack up and they drive in a U-Haul from California to New York to record one song. This wasn't like a, you know, American idol thing. I mean, they had nothing, they were nothing, they had nothing, but they just made this giant trek to go out there to do something they loved. And you're right. This album sounds like, they recorded it probably in an afternoon. And the fact that they didn't go back and remaster it or not, not remaster it, but go like re-record or anything like that. It's still preserved today in that state is pretty awesome. Cause you can hear that. Like you were saying, they're teenagers, teenagers just playing a music that nobody had ever heard before. Yeah. And that was hit the lights that they got on yeah. metal massacre. And it, it, you know, it, it, it kind of spawned the rest of it. Now I, I give the, the vocal quality, you know, it, it, it needs some work and they didn't know what they were doing. Right. But the precision of the guitar work on here deserves, you know, to be held pretty highly. I feel like, you know, you can say, Oh, let's just do I'm like, no, you know how hard it is to do that precisely and not let it sound like a mess. And, you know, hear it, you know, just smear all over your speakers and it would just sound like noise to do that that well, that's real talent. And nobody even knew people had talent like that because music like this 
didn't exist. And one thing that I think you guys might find industry uh, interesting, when I was doing research for this, I found out their second gig ever was at the Whiskey in 1983, opening for Saxon, a, a big new wave of British heavy metal star band, right? Coming to LA to do their thing. Crew was supposed to open for that, but Crew was getting too big. They're too big to open for some British band that people didn't know that well. So they bumped out and in slides, Metallica. And so you're talking, Jay, about how this was the death knell for glam rock, even though glam rock was kind of just taking off at this point. No, this is what the next thing is. And people better pay attention. And no one was. No one gave it a serious look because it was too fast and it was too hard. And I am reminded of the conversation that I had with Joe Satriani when he talked about the hardest Van Halen song for him to play because we were talking about the the rumors that was a of, great show, by the way, Jay. I was so jealous when you were talking to him. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But he talks about I'm the one. And he talks the reason why it's so hard is because of the right hand, because of the, the fast that Eddie was playing and how fatigued mm-hmm. your hand can get by doing that for three minutes, right? He's right. like, it's such a hard song. But everybody hears it. And, and I tell them why it's hard. And they're like, oh, that's probably the easy part. No, that's the hard part to do that through a whole three and a half minute song. And then you look at Metallica, like you said, the guitar work. Yeah, they got the, the cool like Seek and Destroy and the lead on that is awesome. But it's that that rhythm, that 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 th- um, that thrashness where the fatigue can settle in on your wrist and in your hand. Yeah. But they're doing not for three and a half minutes, for five to eight minutes because yeah. their songs were longer. And that really is very underappreciated when you talk about the guitar players in Metallica. Everybody says, oh, Kirk's not that good of a bullshit. He's a great <laughs> guitar player, you know? Dave Mustaine, a great guitar player. Yeah. Obviously, he wasn't on any of those songs. But even James Hetfield as a rhythm guitar player, I mean, that's hard to do. You do that with your wrist, playing that fast for five to six minutes and see if you can keep up. Playing the same um, rhythm exactly from the first part of the song to the last because they have that level on a studio and they could tell what's slagging what's not you got to keep that up the whole song and you That's can't right. loop it like you can now you have to play that and very underappreciated when you when you when you think about the guitar work on any of the metallica albums one of the things that i was able to celebrate last year was the megaforce anniversary show in hollywood florida at the hard rock with oh. seven thousand metallica fans Cool. And they talked about they they Raven opened up for them and at the show and Raven was on the first tour that they did in the U.S. It was a co-headline tour. co-headline. Yeah. Yeah. But they had a little bit of a documentary at the beginning of the set about this album that they recorded. And then in the middle of the set, to give them a break, they had another bit, too. But they talked about how it was a phone call to Metallica on the phone that convinced them to go from San Francisco to New York based on a phone call to go to Zazula's house <laughs> in the middle of the night, got there in the middle of the night, they drove there with barely any money and they recorded this album. And I know there were some bands from England that wanted to, they were, they Megaforce had a lot of bands from England, but they didn't have an American band uh, and right. they wanted to have an American band and they felt Metallica would be the perfect, perfect band to do that. And it was it was a great little 10 minute, 15 minute documentary. But to hear all these songs played, they didn't they did nothing from Master of Puppets and on. They did everything from the first two albums and they did Blitzrig and Am I Evil too. Wow. They ended with Blitzrig. No, they ended with Hit the Lights, but they also played Blitzrig, they played Metal Militia, they played oh, it was just fantastic. And 
to hear this music in this setting that I saw last year of, of these albums, I can't see Metallica again. I can't go see them again. <laughs> Ruined because for you. I yeah, well, because all right, I've seen I've seen with a small seven thousand show playing the songs from the first two albums of their career. I can't go to a big stadium and look at screens now because I'm just gonna be like, I, I don't need to see them anymore. I, I saw and I've seen them several times throughout the years, but mm-hmm. it was just a way to cap off my fandom with their music in that setting and to kind of revisit and take me back to when I was a young kid and just the just sneaking this music because of Sister Blanche or Sister <laughs> Benedicta heard this in my Catholic school or saw these cassette tapes. I'd get a detention. I'd You're get out, trouble yeah. confiscated. It was so it just man, that's why I was glad to, to talk about this album with you guys because Kill 'em All is means a lot personally because even though I didn't hear it when it came in 1983, it was still part of my me, me growing up. And um, Metallica was a definite part of growing up. And it happened so different than the other bands I grew up with, how I became a fan of theirs. So it was just, it's just a completely different way. It wasn't because of MTV. It was just word of mouth in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. It was underground. It was purely underground. Yeah. And I like what you said about James. Look, James to me is, I know you say he's hes the rhythm guitarist because he's not doing the blistering solos like Kirk or even like Dave used to do when he was in the band. But he's lead rhythm guitar. He's like Keith Richards. Like maybe he's not doing all the fiddly bit solos, but he's setting the standard. He, he's creating the music and not everyone can play like him. And I mean, unless your name's Tony Iommi, I don't know that there's ever been anyone who can come up with a riff better than James Hetfield. And like you say, keep it metronomically. I don't care if you're going 160 beats per minute. I don't care if you're going 152. Keep it there for five, eight, 12, however many minutes that he does it. And they do have some time changes, almost like a prog band. um, And Maiden obviously did too. But his steadiness doesn't get enough credit. And it's the bedrock of the sound of Metallica and thrash metal music, if you ask me. Yes, absolutely 100% agree. You couldn't have said it any better. It, it is the it is the the infrastructure of thrash metal right there. Now, here's the other thing that we kind of lose a little bit now is that you were talking about James Hetfield being the lead rhythm guitarist. On these first three records, everybody is lead something. You've got you forget about Cliff Bill, you forget about Cliff yeah. being the lead bassist. I mean, he's in there, he's doing his thing. Uh, you know, once Newstead comes along, he's basically just an employee and he gets told what to do. I don't think anybody's going to tell Cliff Burton what to do. Uh, And then you've got James. I mean, you've got uh, Lars in the back doing drumming that you really hadn't heard a whole bunch. Said double kick. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And I know he gets a lot of, he gets a lot of crap for being, Oh, he's not that great of a drummer. He sounds pretty good on this record. Yeah, he does. Well, and Cliff, we just had Mick Wall on the show. It comes out tomorrow, man. Uh, But but Mick's like, you know, Cliff was ready to kick you out of the band. He had somebody lined up, Lars. You know, he was going to get somebody to replace you. Like, well, good luck replacing Lars Metallica, man. It's, you know, it's like replacing Eddie Van Halen and Van Halen, kind of. You know, I mean, it doesn't work that way. I always like to play the what if. And if Cliff wouldn't have tragically passed away, mm. would Metallica ever have made the Black Album? Fair question, Jay. Would that have ever happened? Because Cliff was, as much as James was the sound of Metallica, Cliff was the soul mm. of Metallica. And he he was, you talk about the genes in the in the 
the hair that they had, and they weren't the most you know good looking guys. Cliff is like another level, (laughs) you know, and he had that attitude. And and I don't know, I'm just speculating, but the way this band was, if they wanted to go in a different direction, would Cliff have left? Would Cliff have played along? Mm -hmm. What would this have been like? I don't know. I don't, obviously no one will ever know, but it just, I just get this feeling that they wouldn't have evolved in the way they evolved if Cliff was still in the band. I think you're onto something there. And, you know, Cliff gets credit now for the Kill 'em All title because they were going to call it Metal Up Your Ass with the, you know, the, the <laughs> toilet and the big, you know, uh, fist with the, the knife coming up. It. And they're like, you know what? We can't put that in Walmart and record distributors aren't going to want to do that. And it, apparently, you know, it, it's it, it, legend has it that Cliff said, oh, fucking record company people, kill them all. Like, Ooh, now that would be a good title for the album. So now we've got the, you know, the hammer with the, with the blood everywhere and that's the classic cover instead of the other one of course they made a t-shirt out of the other one and they've they've had what subsequent releases like a videos metal up your ass so they they still held on to it i think they probably made the right decision but that just adds to the lore and you're right no one was more metal than cliff and like you watch him like the, i think it was behind the music or one of those when scott ian's like when you saw cliff headbang and it was like and he's a pretty big headbanger himself he's like would you look at that guy? Look at the way he bangs his head. And, you know, he'd be like the next day, God, I can barely move because my neck's all stiff. It was like, yeah, dude, because you're doing this for three straight hours, man. He was he was the most badass of the boys, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting, you know, thought of just what would have happened if Cliff never would have passed away. And would be, be would Metallica be the modern-day Led Zeppelin that they became? Mm. You know, uh, with their popularity, I don't know. Would they have cut their hair for the load albums? Would they have? Who knows? You know, would they have ever left Megaforce? Right. To go to Electra, you know, and then Warner, and then their own. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. Well, and we. Oh, so, but at some point here, we got to talk about Mustaine. What if Mustaine had gotten his act together? Because uh, Mustaine was very different from the guys. But Mustaine grew up very poor, father not around, on food stamps, and grew up kind of resentful of the world. Lars's father was a professional tennis player. Okay. That's a very different world, you know? And and so, you know, they would get drunk and be like, Oh, isn't it fun to be out on the road with this girl? And be like, yeah, fucking hate these people. I hate the world. I hate everything that ever happened to me. Like, Whoa, dude, you got to chill out, man. You know? So it makes for great writing and it gave him some determination, but it also led to his departure and his going to rehab, what, 17, 18 times before we figured out, if I want to change, I'm the one who has to do it. It's not about what they did to me. It's what I want out of myself, you know, and he, he deserves a lot of credit for early Metallica, but it's, it's very different Megadeth than Metallica. Yeah. At our age, how young we are, all three yes. of us, <laughs> we all know what it's like to be around an angry drunk. Yep. And Jackson knows he lived with one for two years in college. No, no, I, I was a happy drunk. Anyway, <laughs> no comment. But we all have experienced that. And the first time you see it, it's kind of fun. Oh, this guy's angry. He's pissed. The second time, it's a little less fun. And it gets a little less fun every time it happens. Because now when you go out, you're worried about what this guy's going to do if he has one too many. Mm-hmm. And if you can't have a good time and you can't do all these things and whatever. So when people push back of Metallica never should have thrown Dave Mustaine out. What choice did they Think have? About what it's like to be around an angry, angry drunk every day. Yeah. Your life. 
you know, and it gets very taxing. It gets very wearing. However, that same angst that Dave has, has allowed him to make the music he has. You know, yep. if Dave wasn't an angry drunk, we probably wouldn't have the same Megadeth. We probably wouldn't have had the the same Metallica and Kill 'Em All and 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 whatnot. He helped Metallica formulate their sound th- because of a little bit of that anger, and maybe that was what set that attitude on its path. Was that anger that came from Dave? That fuck you, the middle finger, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Again, maybe, you know, it could have been a little bit of all of them, but we know Dave's issues with alcohol and anger. I mean, you, you draw your own conclusion. Yeah, I have a bootleg of Metallica that they recorded in the garage prior to Kill 'Em All, Ooh. and I think it's got a version of Phantom Lord where he sings it. Dave does. Yeah, Dave okay. does. I think it's Phantom Lord. I gotta look at it again. But I know they do some new wave of British heavy metal. He does a Savage cover of a new, which is a new wave of British heavy metal. Um, he sings that song on the bootleg. And you hear that. This is before they recorded the album. I mean, you really hear that attitude and that anger come through. And they had that, but it was a little less. It wasn't as much. And Mm -hmm. I don't think it really impacted their sound completely. But, you know, Dave is an important part of, if not the music of Metallica, if you you don't want to give him credit for that, which I think he's owed a little bit, he's definitely owed a lot credit towards the attitude of that, you know, underground mad at the world, fuck the world attitude that Metallica had early on. Yeah, metal up your ass sounds like something that Dave would say, you know, yeah, at breakfast. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, there's always eating his uh, Cheerios. That's right. Does Dave Mustaine eat Cheerios? I don't know. I don't know. It sounds like a little happy, too happy yeah, for him. Cheery. Maybe, maybe he's more of like a Count Chocula. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, you were saying about what if, you know, what if Dave had stayed in the band? I don't think there's any way that that was going to work out. Even if he, even if he said, you know what, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm going to rehab. This is good. It was always going to be the Lars and James show. There was, they did not have room for him, and he was not going to fall in line. Oh, okay, fellas, whatever you want to play. No, everything was going to be a fight. Everything was going to be. Well, what about this? Well, I've got these songs. I mean, that's that's what Megadeth was. It was him. It's him being himself. And I just don't think there was a room for a third truly creative person in that band. You needed people who just said, this is what we're playing and let's go. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we all look at the former member of a band before they went on to stardom, whether it's the Beatles or whomever. I mean, and there's always a reason why. And you always look at, well, they would have been better with this guy. Maybe, but more likely Hmm. not because they were better without him. And it shows with the music that they made. There's a reason why these guys didn't last in that environment has nothing to do with their musicianship or sometimes it does. But in this case, I don't think it did. I just think it, it manifested itself where they couldn't deal with the tension. It was, I think it was, there's nothing wrong with tension when you're creating. I think it was the tension when they weren't creating. Yeah. 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 I mean, and and you're right. It's it's one of those deals where it's like, you know, this guy's going to blow his top. You just don't know when, and it's funny when he's, you know, I don't know, kicking the side of a car and that's fun. But when it's turned back at you, then it's like, uh-oh, now I don't like this at all. Yeah. And yeah, that walking on eggshells, that gets old 
real quick. Yeah, if he's going after some promoter who's ripping you off, yeah, that's great. That's why we want Angry Dave, and it's hilarious. Let him kick the shit out of him. But now he's picking on Kirk, or right. not Kirk, but uh, you know, he's, he's picking on uh, Lars or something like that. It's like, whoa, whoa, I'm the one who got us our contract, man. What are you doing? You know, it's like I don't need that in my life. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. I mean, I yeah, I don't think Metallica would have had the career that they've had with Dave, and I don't think they would have ever lasted with Dave. Mm. I don't think, you know, they maybe would have lasted through Kill Em All, but I think it would have spun out of control shortly thereafter. And I think it's, I think it serves Metallica well that even though Dave contributed with the writing of the music on Kill Em All, Mm -hmm. he didn't contribute to the actual playing of the music. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important distinction because, you know, that was them formulating their sound as that unit, as the four with Kirk on guitar without Dave and Dave went and did his Megadeth stuff and Megadeth has had some great shiny moments, you know, but nothing, nothing close to what Metallica has. But, and again, when you look at Megadeth and you look at Metallica, yeah, Megadeth has had some great stuff, but there's a reason why they're not considered mainstream. And there's a reason why singing about war, death and destruction over and over again can appeal to a little bit of an audience, but Metallica appeals to a much wider audience because of a lot of different things. Hey, this is Tom and Zeus from Shout It Out Loudcast. And you are listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, well, we've got to get into some of these songs here because we're I knew this was going to happen. We're going to start riffing and everybody's going to be like, <laughs> talking and having a good time. It's like, oh, geez. We talked a little bit about Hit the Lights. It's kind of their first. It wasn't a single but it kind of is because it was on Metal Mascara. I want to talk about the second song, The Four Horsemen, because I love this song. It is a quintessential Metallica song, but it is a Mustaine song that was originally called mechanics and i think it was yeah. talking about how he had sex first time or you know one of the first times at a gas station or something like that well when he got kicked out he's like don't take any of my songs you can't have them and then james reworked the lyrics to talk about the four horsemen built this killer bridge this killer bridge in the middle of it And I'm like, damn, that's awesome. 
Now, mechanics, if you listen to it because it was on killing is my business and business is good, it is faster, but it's a little tinnier to me. And Four Horsemen is a little slower. So it's a little, to me, it's a little heavier. And the lyrics are way, way better. James is way ahead of Dave on that one. How do you guys feel about the difference between the two? I got to correct myself. The the bootleg I have is Dave Mustaine singing the mechanics. Okay. Okay. So that's what I couldn't remember exactly what it was. So uh, in my opinion, Phantom, or I'm sorry, the four horsemen is the best song on the album. Mm. In, in my opinion, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, the differences between the both, again, there's a reason why someone left the band and there's a reason why Metallica is who Metallica is. James is the one that put that together and made the song or elevated the song to what we all know it became and what it is. So it's such a powerful song. It's different than hit the lights, hit the lights. is a very great introduction to Metallica. But if again, if there's a path that is set for Metallica, I think it begins with the four horsemen and this, the, the, the lyrics, the, the, the riff, the, the lead, whatever it is, it really is. Again, like I said, the best song on the album. But say you Jackson. I, I like it a lot. I, I, this this goes back to the what if, you know, what if they could have worked with Mustaine more? I mean, you can definitely tell his influence on these songs, the, the ones, I mean, he's got, what, four out of the nine that he contributed on. Yeah, the Megadeth one, that's not so great. You know, banging in the gas station, okay, good for you. But, you know, this whole thing of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and I don't buy that thing with Mustaine. You know, don't use any of my music. Sorry, dude, that's the band's music. Like, you wrote it. You got credit for it, but to say that we're not going to use it, if it's good, it's going on there. Yeah. And I look, I love Four Horsemen. I when we did the review of when I got to see Metallica open up M72 in Amsterdam, it was the one disappointment that I have. There's no four horsemen. But then I went back and looked of the five times I I, I would have told you that I've seen them play this live. I've seen four of the ten songs live, but four horsemen's not one of them. And I would have guaranteed you that it was. And I think it's because, A, it was on Live Shit Binge and Purge, in which I bought and listened to a ton. And I just kind of conflated that probably with you and me seeing them on the Black Tour in Fort Myers, Jackson. But then also, I bought the deluxe edition of Hardwired to Self-Destruct. And that third disc has a killer version, a killer version of the Four Horsemen on it. And I listened to that third disc more than I listened to the first <laughs> two uh, with the original stuff on it. And so, I, you know, I, I just kind of figured, oh, yeah, I have heard it, but. I love it. I think it is quintessential Metallica. It is kind of the birth. I mean, Hit the Lights was the first thing they did. That might have been something. They may not have even re-recorded that. that. That may have already been sitting around from, from Metal Mask. And like, okay, we'll just plug that in. We got one, only nine to go. But this is, to me, the best song. I mean, I know Seek and Destroy is kind of the big one, and they play the hell out of it. What about the third track, Motor Breath, which we have seen them do, I, I, I think, there, Jackson? It's kind of short and to the point. But it's about life on the road. You know, got, you got the drums from Lars and descending riff from James and then drum rolls and six solo from Kirk. I mean, this is a quintessential Metallica song. Although short, I mean, Metallica is kind of known for longer songs. 
But this motor breath is about life on the road and kind of a quintessential metal tune. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, I think it shows kind of what the band or how they, how they relate to people, you know, it's kind of everyday things and yeah, being on the road, it's just, especially back then must've just been exhilarating on one point, but then horrible at the other. Cause you know, the conditions were probably a little less than favorable, not uh, private jets to sold out concerts in Amsterdam. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on it, Jay? Motor breath continues the now obvious influence of new wave of british heavy metal i mean and i think that's one of the things that's kind of underneath the surface throughout this whole album is i am a huge fan of new wave of british heavy metal and i collect new wave of british heavy metal stuff like some of these albums that i've been able to obtain cost some some money compared yeah. to other stuff and when you listen to all those bands whether it's diamond head or tank or holocaust or all that stuff and you listen to kill them all I mean, it, it really is. I mean, Megaforce was right to really go after Metallica in that they needed an American band that could play this music to help further their cause. And Motorbeth, I think, exudes that more so than any other song on the album. It really hits all the points of the new wave of British heavy metal movement. And that's you know why, I, you know, of course, it's a great song. And I think the hardcore Metallica fans that have been there since the beginning or fairly from the beginning always cite songs like Motor Breath or Metal Militia mm-hmm. or Phantom Lord or the songs that the Four Horsemen we just talked about are really what they always say. Oh, oh they got to do Metal Militia more. They got to do Motor Breath more. And I, I think, though, when you look at the song and you go and you listen, listen back to some of these new wave of British heavy metal bands that really, man, you hear it all in, in motor breath. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, going to the next one, Jump in the Fire. I love this one, too. Second single off the album. And I didn't realize that they had live versions of Seek and Destroy and Phantom Lord as like B-sides, although they weren't really live. They were the studio version with a little mm-hmm. crowd noise pumped in there, you know. So it's like we're, we're live. And this one we've seen live, Jackson. This is killer. Another Mustang pen song that James kind of reworked here. To me, this is killer because I think uh, Dave did it kind of about his first sexual experience. But James kind of took it like from the devil's point of view, like, you know, come in and join me, you know, in what I've got going on here, kiddies. And it's going to be fun for everybody. Killer, killer, killer song. So what was that like? Dave comes back. Hey, I got another song about screwing. All right, Dave, just relax. Take a step back here. We can we can work this into something else. We're not going to talk about that for yeah, every. We're going to sing about Satan. You know, we're not yeah. going <laughs> to sing about you getting laid. All right, we're singing about the devil taking over the world and how our metal army is part of it. Right. You know, one thing about this this that I've got uh, written down here is that some of the some of the solos from Kirk they're they're fantastic, but some of them really they kind of sound like they don't fit. They're just like go, and he just you know freaks out this yeah. yeah exactly the fiddly bits this one to me sounds like it's the best fit for the song like it's it's kind of written and put in there purposely and not just to show off 
Well, now some of these Dave made and then Kirk did it his way and then improved on it. Do you know anything about this, Jay? I mean, did Dave lay this one down or did Kirk completely redo it? Or do you have any knowledge of that? I don't on this on this one. Obviously, you know, Kirk adds his flair to it, but I, I, I don't know how much the original solo has changed. I would imagine being, you know, Kirk being a, a guitar player that when it comes to a solo or a lead, you, you kind of want to add what you want because that's mm-hmm. your signature. That's right. And if it's not a cover song that people know, I, I don't know if there's a reason why. I don't, I mean, just, I, again, speculating. So I don't know if there was ever any change. I do like, like you said, Mac, the change in the lyrics. Mm. Because again, Catholic schoolboy <laughs> reading lyrics about <laughs> Satan welcoming you to hell is like, oh my God, I'm going to, I need to go to the confession <laughs> and, and, and talk about this song because I shouldn't be listening to it. So again, it's that darkness, and I think it served the band well. I think I don't know what caused all the tension between the band, but I can imagine the lyrics, how they were so willing to change these this stuff when when Dave left, had to be a lot of it. You know, had to be part of it because, you know, they they changed the lyrics for for this. They changed the lyrics for I forget what was the other one. Was it uh, Phantom Lord? I think they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just think that it's it was better. I think James was more in tune to what they were doing with the attitude of the song like we always talk about how the music mirrors the lyrics right yeah. it creates that yeah. ambience creates that vibe of what you want to feel with the song and i think james understood that better than dave i think the band understood that better than dave mm-hmm. and we see that here with jump in the fire Now, you said you didn't know whether he, what the solos were, whether they were redone or reworked or whatever. It was mine and my own business. I wasn't doing anything for this show. I'm looking through Instagram and up pops Dave Mustaine talking about how on Kill Em All, he wrote all the, uh, all the solos and Kirk played them note for note. And that was as of maybe two days ago. Dude, this was 40 years ago, 40 years ago, <laughs> and we're still harping on this. I, I can't I can't imagine that I can't imagine that that's true, especially for somebody like Kirk. There's no way you went and just played it note for note. They said, here's kind of what we want. And then he put his own flair on it. But my point is, you're still harping on this day. You can't <laughs> let it go. Oh, it's I, I don't it doesn't matter anymore. I don't care. I'm not. You do care. or You wouldn't say anything. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I think he straight up said he hasn't listened to the 72 seasons. Really? You haven't? I bet he, you have. Come he's on. missing out. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know how much Dave is able to, to recollect what happened right. in 1982 and 1983, considering he's been in the rehab almost 20 times. Right. I do know Dave likes to say a lot of things, and Metallica never really responds. So I think Dave uses that to his advantage. Well, it's like they're the royal family and he's Prince Harry. It's like, okay, say what you want, kid. You're not part of the family that. anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's a great analogy. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't buy it. I, I just don't think maybe there's some similarities. Yeah, obviously, when you have a song, you have the lyrics, and you're in your recording, you don't want to do anything too out of whack or too different. 
So maybe there are some similarities, but I, I, I'm willing to bet if I was going to place a smart bet on something, I'd bet that they're not exactly the same. There's no way. And there may have been some lines like follow this and maybe the first four bars of the solo, it was pretty similar, but then he kind of went and did his own thing for the next four or something like that. Yeah. So I, you know, yeah. I don't know, but let's get to pulling teeth anesthesia really cliffs signature track and it doesn't sound anything like a bass at the beginning of it doesn't you i mean it's it's pretty special and weird and different and you know kind of like lemmy has his own thing this is showing how bass could have been so different had we not lost cliff you know he, he was something special and anesthesia is the proof i was just going to say that about lemmy um cliff's playing reminded me of lemmy in that it was unique and really didn't sound like your atypical bass. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that we have this from Cliff. I'm glad that we kind of have something to go to whenever a Metallica fan is missing Cliff. They can go listen to this. Too many times, you know, an artist has passed and we have music because they were part of a collective, a part of a band, but we don't really have something that is really their own. And a lot of artists are like that. There are a few that, that we can go back and listen to something like Eddie Van Halen did or whomever. But it's nice to have Cliff, who never saw Metallica rise to what they became, to kind of have this moment, because I think people forget what he meant to the band. And I think this really is the the signature of, of his playing and his influence on the sound of the band. And honestly, in about the two and a half minute mark or wherever it is that Lars comes in, Cliff continues to do some great stuff after that. I almost feel like Lars is kind of unnecessary or superfluous on it. I would almost rather just, I understand it's more of a jam at that point and, and it can lead into like another song afterwards. I understand why it's like that, but I, honestly, I don't, I don't know if we need Lars on this track, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I could go either way, but um, usually when you can go either way, that means you don't need it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with that statement. I just think that, you know, this isn't something that I listen to frequently, but I listen to it every now and then. Just usually if I'm playing the album, I'll, I'll leave it on. And it just kind of reminds me of what Cliff was and the monster player that he was. Absolutely. And then the tape, which is how most people consumed it back in the day, it comes to an end with Whiplash, the first single I mean, if you take away hit the lights which is not necessarily single but it's some people's first introduction to metallica because of metal massacre but this one for some reason i used to think this was on master of puppets and i don't know why uh, maybe it just fits in with some of that but this is the epitome of thrash and it's about headbanging like proper headbanging it's, it's basically an ode to the crowd like you're coming to your our shows and you're doing this for two and a half hours and you get whiplash you know and I don't know. I think it's a big thing for Burton as well, because he was the biggest headbanger of all of them. I don't know. It, it just shows me that uh, they knew that they were going in the right direction here to release this first, because Four Horsemen is too long. Seek and Destroy is too long. Hit the Lights was already available. So you start with this. Like, how do we introduce the world to Metallica? It's Whiplash. 
Yeah, it is. This is a song when you when I first heard it was like this band sucks. Right? What the hell is this crap? You know? This There's isn't no photograph, movie. man. What the hell is this? <laughs> this isn't. Yeah, this is nothing like that. I'm that I'm into. But if you said that to one of the burnouts in the neighborhood, they they kick your ass. Yeah, this wasn't something that I really listened to until years later because my initial reaction was this sucks. This is not mm-hmm. what I'm into. You know, my my brain wasn't willing to to hear something like this at this at this time. But it's you know for a song that really was so different and is really nothing like what came before it. It really has held up well in the, with the attitude of the song because this whole album the music is great obviously and the songs are great but it's the attitude that really ties everything together and when you have a song about headbanging you got to realize that for the five songs that are previous to this right yep. you've been headbanging and now you're going to hear a song about what you've been doing for the first part of this album so in that aspect it's kind of really cool that a lot of bands in that new wave of british heavy metal era were singing about songs about rocking out at a concert and you know a lot of these new wave of british heavy metal bands had song names after their own band name which was kind of weird to to, to, to think about you know mm-hmm. motorhead has a song called motorhead and iron maiden has a song called iron maiden yeah which yeah. they still do every night <laughs> right and so metallica didn't do that but they had their new wave of british heavy metal moment where maybe motor breath has the sound and vibe of the new wave of British heavy metal. I can't think of a band that was heavily influenced by that period, like Metallica was, to not have a song about the fans and headbanging and doing what they do at their shows. So it kind of goes into what they were influenced, and that's kind of where the song is born out of. So if people were curious as to what the inspiration was, it was the new wave of British heavy metal, and it was the shows that they were playing. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, you know, just like Kiss is like, well, what are you about? You're a party band. Write a song about rock and rolling all night and partying every day, right? right? right yeah, it's like, right. what do you guys do? Well, we're on, the, we're head banging with our people, you know. They're up front, just dun, 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 you know. Let's, all right, let's write a song yeah. about that. Why not? I think Whiplash also just because it's just so raw. And uh, you know, you were talking about Mick Wall um, that we got to speak to uh, a little while ago. He basically said this is the birth of uh, the birth of thrash metal, and to hear that, it's it's pretty cool. It's and the other thing too is that. You know, the, for an album that was recorded for a dollar fifty in nineteen eighty three, this still sounds pretty good. It it doesn't. You know, like you listen to some older albums and you're like, oh, that's well, they tried, but you know, they didn't have it yet. They've got it at, at this point in time. So yeah, Whiplash to me is the best one. This is Sunny Hollywood Pooney, and you are listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Why? Somebody has to. So that's side one. And now we get to some of the longer ones on side two. Starting with Phantom Lord, I got to tell you, Jackson and I talk about this all the time. There's always one song I forget, you know, right? I mean, it's like if I haven't listened to an album in a long time, there's always one. I forget about this one. And for whatever reason, this is the one I forgot about. And I forgot how good it was. Before doing research, I said, Phantom Lord, do you like that? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Is that on there? I can't really remember. And then I listened to it a couple of times like, this is pretty cool. It has that phaser bass to begin with, a little slow drive before it kicks in. And it, it's cool. Now, it's it's talking about this is a Mustang, right, that they reworked uh, about the devil, I guess. And the, the leather army will prevail. Basically telling all you fellow metalheads that uh, we will prevail over these 
suburbanites and these pretty people and the people who try to put us down. But it's also kind of telling them they're in the service of Satan. I don't know. It's it's very heavy, obviously, but it's an underappreciated song for me. It's better than I remember it. Yeah. Is that a synthesizer at the beginning of the song? Well, I don't know for sure. I felt like it was a bass that they kind of did something okay. with, but who okay. who knows? Yeah, no, I I was um always curious about that. I wasn't sure what it was. But when you when you hear the lyrics, you know, at the beginning of the of the song, you know, sound ripping through your ears, the opening sound of metal nears. I mean, fuck, dude. Heavy. <laughs> I mean, dude, I mean, these are like young kids writing that song and you're like, dude, man, that is so badass, like so cool. So it just speaks to the genius of, of who they were, I think. And yeah, one of the issues I've always, it's not really an issue, but with Metallica is when I think of Kill em All, I always include Blitzkrieg, Am I Evil, and Creeping Death on it, mm-hmm. right? Because those were kind of the songs that were released. Creeping Death, I think, was on that demo prior to uh, No Life Till, Till Metal. And Blitzrig, of course, was a new wave of British heavy metal who had a song called Blitzrig and, and, you know, Diamond Head. But I always, like you, forget, like, the catalog because I remember hearing different songs that weren't on this album. And I always go, hey, Creepy Death, it's going kill them all. Well, actually, it's not. But, you know, Phantom Lord, I think, again, is is such a, a, a powerful tune. And I believe they did that in Hollywood, Florida. They did that live. Oh, yeah. And it was so badass to see that in, in, at the show. But, again, another another reason why metallic is who they were with songs like that it's it's very you know the deep cuts especially early on in their career you know whether we talk about this you know the, these songs on this album disposable heroes on master of puppets and some of the other stuff on ride the lightning it's just what i love call know. of Tulu and orion i mean even the instrumentals yeah, are like yeah. damn this stuff yeah, is trapped great. under ice you know oh, God, yeah another great one i mean it's the depth of their catalog the depth of their music it's always a shame when i talk with someone about metallica and they only know the surface songs you mm-hmm. know and there's nothing wrong with that like you know but I, when i say it's a shame it's a shame that they don't appreciate or know of the stuff that made them you know like there are songs before Enter Sandman. There are songs before One, which are both great songs. And I know there's a big contingency of Metallica fans that doesn't want to acknowledge anything after And Justice for All. But right. if you're a fan of the band, you appreciate their evolution because no band can really do anything the same unless your name is ACDC. Right. And the thing with, with a song like Enter Sandman or wherever I May Roam, they get to that point because of what they recorded earlier. They get to the point because of the songs they had previous to that. And Phantom Lord is one of those songs. And that's all part of the evolution. So if you're listening to this and you haven't heard Kill Em All really how you should and like you should, these this these are the reasons. Like this, Motor Breath, Metal Militia, Phantom Lord. These are the songs like why you should revisit this album. These are the, the forgotten songs that 
when you do go see Metallica and you've only been a fan since the Black Album and they play a song like Phantom Lord or Motor Breath, you're like, what's this song? I've never, I don't even know what this is. Go listen to it. It's a badass tune. Yeah. Exactly. Don't go to the bathroom during stuff from Kill 'em All, you know. But but unfortunately, but I mean, they're not doing a whole lot of stuff from Kill 'em All these days. Maybe if someone reminds them, hey, the 40th anniversary is this, maybe you can put some more into the set. But I just went to see them in Amsterdam two nights, four hours of Metallica. We got Seek and Destroy, and that's it. That's the only thing that, that they played off of Kill 'em All. So, but I, and, and you would figure when they're doing two nights, you would dive into a Phantom Ward once in a while. You can, you, you've got the time, but then, you know, their songs are longer. You figure, well, they can play 50 songs in, in four hours. Like, well, no, it's more like 32 or so because their songs are so long. But, you know, the Leather Armies have prevailed. The Phantom Lord has never failed. Smoke is lifting from the ground. The rising volume metal sound if you're a metal head you read or you hear something like that you freak out you're like these are my boys absolutely man listen to this set list that was at the show that i saw in florida yeah give it to me they opened up with creeping death they did ride the lightning motor breath no remorse trapped under ice the call of Cthulhu, phantom lord am i evil metal militia for whom the bell tolls whiplash fade to black seek and destroy fight fire with fire blitzering and hit the lights Good Lord. That's a special night. Yeah. So that's why I can't see him again. <laughs> no, like, I understand. To do all those songs and do the stuff that was the deep cuts, like the stuff that they don't normally play was really special. And I think you're right. I think, you know, there is a, a the, I think now you, we can say that the large base of Metallica fans are from Metallica from the Black Album and on. And then the even larger is from the Master of Puppets era and on. Mm-hmm. And I think Ride the Lightning kind of falls in between, but the Kill 'em All is not really what people want to hear because they're unfamiliar with it. I mean, I think and the I only songs that they could get away with playing is probably Whiplash and Seek and Destroy at this point. And that's mostly what they do. Now, I'll let you get out of here before too long, but I got to talk about No Remorse quickly because, you know, this is one that I actually don't love, to be honest with you. It, it just. Compared to everything else, there's 10 great, there's 10 tracks on here. And I would rate this probably number 10 out of the 10 on the record. It it just, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of time changes. In some areas, it just seems to plot a little bit to me. It's a little long and it's almost like they're trying to do too much. And then for me, it's just, it's a little jarbled. Not to mention it's right before Seek and Destroy, which is one of their all-time classics and, and kind of their original epic long song. So, and, and again, and it's and it's about war and about how, you know, I don't care about you. I don't care about anything. I killed a bunch of people yesterday. I'm going to kill a bunch of people today. Tomorrow, I'm going to kill a bunch of more people. That's just the way the war machine works. But I'd rather hear somebody else's take on it. <laughs> It's a hard song to figure out because I think out of a lot of Metallica songs, there's a lot of more, I think there's a lot more interpretation with this song than a lot of others. You know, I know it's about war. People have said that it's about doing what you want to do and, and all that kind of stuff. And 
I, I don't think anyone's right with their, or I'm sorry, I don't think anybody's wrong with their own interpretation of a song, but I, this is definitely not one of my go-to songs for Kill Em All. I mean, I just think that this is one of those songs, like you mentioned, that, you know, is the early on in their career, their first album, and maybe the songs weren't all at the same level. And I think No Remorse is kind of the one that lags behind, in my opinion. Um, yeah. I think... I think they would have been better served having something like Blitzrig or like mm. maybe something from No Life Till Metal on this album. But maybe it was more about, you know, not giving Dave credit or or whatever the reason was with the track listing. I don't think he wrote this song um, or had anything to do with the writing of this song. No, so, although it kind of sounds like one of his, yeah, to be honest yeah, with you, yeah. lyrically at least. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I would say No Remorse is, is one of my songs that I, I got up until they played it live when i saw them in november i had not listened to this song in years yeah well so. yeah i mean well, and you know you're all over social media you see these things give me an album 10 out of 10 no skips you know and you'll see like heaven and hell black Sabbath yeah. on there and other stuff on there i'm like is this one of them and for me because of that one it's not and I would probably put Master of Puppets on that list, and I would probably put Ride of the Lightning on that list, but I can't put Kill 'Em All on there because because of no remorse. But that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I think I think their their two perfect albums are, are Ride the Lightning and, and uh, Master of Puppets by by far and away. Kill 'Em All. I think the way I look at Kill 'Em All is the birth of greatness, right? And you know, when it, when it, when a kid's when a human being's born, right? They can't talk. They can't. They rely on people to take care of them. And I think it's the same thing with a band. A band's is is learning because they just have given birth to themselves. They're learning how to walk. They're learning how to write. They're learning their strengths and weaknesses. And I think there's always going to be very rarely does a debut album not have any missteps. Right. You think of Van Halen one, the Boston debut album. You think. Appetite for destruction. destruction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't have any. You don't have any missteps on those on those albums, right? And I think, but by and large, for the most part, there's always a song or two on a debut that probably, if a band had to re-record it, they would either either have baked it in the oven a little longer, mm -hmm. or maybe put something Re replaced different. Replaced it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you get into Seek and Destroy, which is which is epic, you know. And I've I've seen them. I've only seen them five times, but they played this three times. You know, it's it's kind of one of those that they always go back to, and the crowd loves it. You know, scanning the scene, the city tonight, looking for get out, start up a fight. Everyone can get into that, right? People feel it in our brains. Love it, man! Epic, so much fun. It's it's amazing. I mean, and again, this song is the back end of their debut album that's become the <laughs> mainstay in their live show. And you know, it's part of it is the chant that the crowd goes, I, I. Like it's just this it's 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 magic when you see it live i mean when you really do you can't really appreciate the song when you hear the studio version but it is become an anthem for them it is become you know it's played in stadiums i, I was at a football game and there was a third down and of course you do something to 
to get the Pump defense the going. And yeah. Usually everybody plays Hell's Bells, right? The thing yep. they have a bell, you know, here the bell, the reckoning is coming. You got to stop them on third down. And I forget what game it was. And they started playing Seek the Riff of Seek and Destroy. I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's different. It's not the bells like I'm so accustomed to. So um, I think it's become way more than what they ever anticipated and what they ever thought would be. I think their whole career is way more than they anticipated. I think you're right. And I think this is this is the most well-known song off the album, and it probably wasn't for the first 10 years. Probably it was Whiplash, and this right. song has become the you know the one song that the, the surface Metallica fans, the casual Metallica fans want to hear. Absolutely. Nice long song, about seven minutes. And then we wrap up with, with Metal Militia. Again, a strong song. Another Dave, right, that I guess the Lars and, and James kind of repurposed a little bit, though. And obviously, this is one of those deep cuts like you're talking about that if you're a casual fan, you don't know this one, you probably need to, to know this one. But it is interesting because it's kind of about not conforming, right? Not conforming to greater society. But it is about conforming to the metal team, right? It's like they don't conform to those people, but conform to us. So you're still, you know, right? You're still giving yourself up to something that maybe is bigger than you, but it's not the thing that you dislike. It's the thing that that's welcoming you in. The thing that you know everyone else is telling you you're a dirtbag or you're stupid or you you're not cool enough to hang out with us. We're like you are cool enough to hang out with us. Come hang out with us, but you still got to do everything the same way we do. It. It's not the same way they do. Kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a great analysis of it. I think the heaviness and the and the how fast this song is is just it's frantic. It is. It, it totally is, and it's like this grand finale of you know to put at the end of an album. Oh my god! And it just leaves you like you know if you're a young kid and you're in the mid '80s and you hear something like this and you and you finish this album and you're done listening to Metal Militia, this leaves you wanting what's next. Like what I want more Metallica. I need more Metallica because it is so now we hear it now and we hear it differently now because we know what Metallica is and we know the music that has come after. But hearing this in the mid eighties, you've got to go there with your mind and just remember what music was like at this time. And hearing the song, it is, it was so different. I mean, the whole album is heavy, but this is like a whole nother level and you're confused. You're excited. You're wanting more. You're, afraid to have your parents hear this song you're all these things you're like this kid in your room going what i I can't let anybody know that i heard this you know because because that's the thing too back then when you listen to stuff because there's so much controversy about ozzy maiden priest talica all these bands you felt a sense of evil when you heard this stuff Mm -hmm. and it was all made up it's all it's all make believe. It's all Fantasy. put there by people that want you to think that they shouldn't listen. They make you afraid of what you're doing. But back in the day, when you're an impressionable kid, and you know you're 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 raised in an Italian Irish Catholic home like I was, and you go to Catholic school like I did, and you're taught by penguins like I was, and you were an altar boy and all this stuff. Listening to this stuff was like you were afraid if your parents found out. Sure. And metal militia, when you hear it, you're like. Oh my God! This is this is the work of the devil. (laughs) I'm going to go to hell. I need to pray and and all this stuff. And and I think that's what the burnouts figured out was. No, you're not going to go to hell. And maybe you will. But this is a song that speaks to my anger and angst and my confusion as a teen inside of me. 
And that's what Metallica, by accident, was able to capture the band, the kid that's been disenfranchised or outcasted. Exactly. They, they spoke to them. And this was the beginning. It's, it's you're talking directly to the metalhead here. It's like, join us. They're disenfranchising you. They're weakening you. They're, they're separating you out and saying, no, you're no good. We're saying together, we're strong. And we march together. We're badass. That's what we're here for, you know? And even, you know, when I saw him in the huge stadium tour a couple of months ago, it was like, you know, we are Metallica. It's not just us up here on the stage. The fans who need this release, who need this music to get through their lives, we're all in this together. Now, I wasn't on the private plane with them, but I did feel a sense of community there with, what, 50, 60,000 other people. Yes. Now, Mac, think of this, right? Because you've been a lot of concerts. I've been a lot of shows. When you don't go see Metallica, there's always at least one person at that event wearing a Metallica shirt. <laughs> okay? Always right. one. There's always one guy walking around with a Metallica shirt at a Maiden show, at a freaking Crosby, Stills, and Nash show, whatever it is, right? Right. When you go to a Metallica show, no one has another band shirt on. It's all Metallica. It's all and those Metallica. T-shirts, the uniqueness of those shirts, because there are so many, and they have limited runs on T-shirts, everybody wears their T-shirts like it's a uniform of a metal military. That's right. Okay. And when the, the kids, the burnouts at the young age, they figured it out, right? They wore their back patch and the Metallica shirts. They were the beginning of the Metallica army. And it's grown and grown. I mean, you go to a Metallica show and you see hundreds of different T-shirts walking around, yep. right? And, and Metallica fans pick their T-shirt by a lot of different things. When they came into being a fan, what's the fan of their favorite period or how the t-shirt speaks to their psyche and to their, into their thoughts. Right. And it's just remarkable because we're on metal militia militia, you know, is essentially an army, how they've been able to foster that and grow that. Because when you go to a Metallica show, whether it's the 7,000 seater that I saw, whether it's the 60,000 seater that you saw, or whether it was back in the day when I was freaking 11 years old, going to see him at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago, sneaking in. And Did you see him at Aragon? Yeah, I saw him at Aragon. No and, way. <laughs> and I'm just telling you, man, from that moment on, when you go see Metallica and you're a Metallica fan, you're all in. You are all in. That's why, like, when, you know, Metallica is one of my favorites. It's not my favorite, but, dude, the hardcore, live and breathe Metallica fan, there's nothing else like it. In rock and roll, other than maybe Rush or Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. I would put those three probably, you know, in, in equal equal pairing. Well, and it, it, there is a family kind of thing about it. Like you're here with your people. And when I did that thing in Amsterdam, where it was like the Thursday night was the first show, Saturday night was the second. When I come back Saturday night, it's all the same people. We all have the same seats the next night, and we're all welcoming each other and hugging each other and buying each other beers the second night because 
you know, we went through it and got to know each other a little bit night one. And now it's like, hey, we're all back. We're all together. And hey, you know, they're going to play this. You know, they're going to play one. You know, they're going to play, you know, whatever. And, and just having fun like that. It's like, yeah, you're with your people here, you know. And I was with a, a girl not that long ago who was like, oh, you go to the Metallica show? Oh, I think I'd be scared to go to that. I'm like, whatever, man. You went to that Dead and Company show with me five years ago. And I was scared to death. But, you know, these people are on all sorts of weird drugs and I don't know what they're going to do. And they're walking around saying and acting ridiculous and odd. I'm like, I've never been. And I'm kind of a big guy. I know. And she's a little girl. And that there's a difference there. I understand. But I've never really been scared at a Metallica concert before. Not like I was at that Dead and Company show. I'm like, what is wrong with these fucking people? <laughs> I was scared at that Aragon show when I was 11. Well, you um, should have been. You're fucking 11. <laughs> Mostly because, like, <laughs> I, I thought everybody looked like a mass murderer back then. Um, but a great story of my childhood. I grew up in Des Plaines, Illinois, right. uh, which is just outside of Chicago. And Des Plaines, Illinois is widely known as being where John Wayne Gacy got uh, a majority of his victims. Okay. Um, and a lot of his victims, I was in, in high school at the time, but a lot of his victims, I think 14 of them, went to the high school that I eventually went to. Holy shit. So you grow up, Irish Catholic family, and also this presence of a serial killer in the early part of your life. You have issues already. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember sleeping over at a friend's house, and Metallica was in town, and I think they were playing at what is now the Allstate Arena, but again, I think it was Master the Puppets Tour. I think they were opening for Ozzy, I want to say. Sounds and right. It was at the, now it's that it was back then it was called the Rosemont Horizon. Okay. And my friend's older brother got a call from a friend that after the show they were hanging out. Metallica was hanging out at this place called Forest View Bowl. It was the bowling alley, which was okay. right down the road from Rosemont Horizon. So he left and we were there and we're like, Metallica's at Forest View Bowl. So we rode our bikes at like midnight. Nice. Forest View Bowl. And there's a crowd in the parking lot. Everyone, the Metallica music's playing. There's cigarette smoke. There's mm -hmm. marijuana smoke. And we got in and we were, because we were smaller, we were able to wiggle through people. And there they were at this table, smoking cigarettes, signing autographs, talking with whomever. And we were there for probably, because we didn't, we wanted to get back. We were there for like probably 15 minutes, no longer than okay. 15 minutes. And I just remember seeing them. You know, at, at 12 years old, and it wasn't like I was right next to him, but I could see them. Mm -hmm. I remember, we walked out and we rode our bikes home in silence, just like we, what we saw. Like we just saw Metallica like 10 feet from us, like signing autographs, smoking marble reds or whatever they were smoking. And right. the crowd in the in the parking lot was like, was like it was like a pregame of a show, you know. And I didn't know really what that meant at the time. But it was just, there was always like this connection. And the radio station that I mentioned earlier, WDX, had a big connection with Metallica. Like every time they came in town, they were always in studio with them. They would always talk to them on the phone in other parts of the country. Cool. So Metallica had this huge presence in this radio station. And this DJ, Scott Loftus, who I don't know whatever happened to him. But I just remember the moment and just seeing them grow in their career and seeing who they were. And who they become. I always go back to that moment in the Aragon Ballroom moment as being present when they were underground. And it kind of, you know, as, as I get older, I, I appreciate it more. And as I get older, you know, the, the, the small fish that you caught 
that size now is you know this size so maybe there's a little bit of embellishment there but it's just cool to have that and and you know i've shared that with my son and his friends and you know they look at me like oh my god you know but they can't grasp how i got on a bike at midnight and rode my bike over busy streets at midnight it's something we did back in the day yeah (laughs) back in the day we did it and I don't think his parents ever knew that we were there. And Probably not. Yeah, just a just a great moment. So Metallica has always meant something to me. I, I just remember the curiosity of the kids with the Metallica shirts and why they were so passionate. Why I couldn't get as passionate about Motley Crue as they got passionate about Metallica. Right. And now I know, and now I know why. Yeah. And, well, and they gave you 51 song. minutes, right? They give you 51 minutes, which was unheard yeah. of back then. The year before, yeah. Van Halen gave you 31 minutes of Diver Down and half of its covers anyway, right? So yeah. suddenly someone comes in, and Van Halen's badass, right? It, Van Halen's not cheating you. It, we haven't gotten to 1984 yet at this point. But yeah, Van Halen, the best band in the world, just gave you 31 minutes the year before. And now these guys come in heavy as hell, fast as hell, with damn near an hour of this stuff. It's like... This is the changing of the guard. This is this is the way the world is turning. And it all started in 1983, my man. It really did with Kill 'Em All. And you know, to touch on it really quick, the new wave of British heavy metal movement is so important to Metallica. Mm-hmm. And Lars has spoken openly about it. Not so much James and Kirk, but Lars was. I mean, he grew up in Denmark, so he got, right. he got a, you know a, a front row seat to it. But when you See, here are these bands, and you look at the old bills that Metallica was on, whether it was with Diamond Head, Tank, Raven, Holocaust, Venom. Savage, you know, all these bands. I, mean, I know I'm forgetting, um, Angel, um, Angel Witch, no, Death, Death, yeah, Angel Witch, yeah, Angel mm-hmm. Witch, um, great album, that debut album is fantastic. And you listen to this stuff, uh, which, uh, which find. Oh, another great guy. I can go on and on. I love Tigers I love, of Pantang. Oh, Tigers of Pantang, man. Seriously. Just <laughs> absolutely incredible. John Sykes. Absolutely. Player of, of, uh, of Tigers of Pantang before he was in Thin Lizzy. But, you know, when you listen to that stuff, and I always like to peel back the orange, right? I, I don't, I wouldn't listen to New Wave of British Heavy Metal unless it was for Metallica. If you're, if you're a Metallica fan, diehard, cutthroat Metallica fan, and you haven't really dove into the new wave of British heavy metal, do it. You'll love it. Iron Maiden, their first two albums are are considered, you know, one of the best new wave of British heavy metal albums. Saxon was a big, big, big new wave of British heavy metal. It's so primitive. It really is. When you hear this music, it's not flashy. The musicianship isn't the greatest. The production isn't the greatest. And a lot of it. And a lot of the albums, the production just isn't there. And, but what it is, what it is and why you should appreciate it is it is a direct and the first correlation and group of influence bands that came from Black Sabbath. Mm. That's it, Black Sabbath. I mean, when you hear all this music and you see how it is, I mean, there's some Zeppelin, some purple in there, but everybody talks about Black Sabbath being the, the, the grandfather of heavy metal. And then there's Metallic Maiden, Priest, Metallica, Motorhead. But this is the area that or era that no one talks about a lot you know some people do but this is the era that if you like sabbath and you're metallica maiden motorhead priest this is an era for you you got to go check it out i mean i love tank i love diamond head i love all these bands and it is you can go down a rabbit hole of new wave of british heavy metal and you will come out like 
you'll be you'll be spending money hand hand over fist on discogs buying this stuff. Right. No, I, I've done some of that myself. But when you, you yeah. say, well, yeah, it's not always the greatest musicianship. It doesn't always have the greatest quality. But compared to punk, which is what it was kind of versus, it's much better musicianship, and it has much clearer things to say. And it's they're way better at everything than the punks. The punks were kind of like, no, we can't play. We're just pissed off, and that's cute for a year or two. And it's like, okay, can we evolve past this? But I mean, talk about bands that evolve. Look at this first record by Metallica, and then look what they did for the next 10 years. They kept evolving and evolving, and then after that, even changing up what they're doing, pushing it as artists. They're not one-trick ponies, obviously, uh, and this was the start of it all. I mean, it's similar to Led Zeppelin. Think of Led Zeppelin 1 all the way through In Through the Outdoor. You know, yeah, Zeppelin 1 years. is a blues album. In Through the Outdoor is a prog album. Pretty much. Hey. And so was the so was presence, you know? Yeah. And I love it when bands do that. I want to see evolution. You know, like I said, ACDC is great. One of my favorite bands too, as well. They're the only ones that could really do it. But for the Metallica fans that shun everything after Injustice for All, well, that's on you. Yeah. That's because you can't get over the fact that Metallica needed to change. Metallica couldn't release the same album as they were doing with Injustice for All, with Master of Puppets, with Right. Ride the Lightning. They're all great albums, but like any artist, you need to keep things flowing. You need to keep things different. And that's what they did. And that's why they're Metallica. That's why they're great. That's why they're the biggest band probably since Zeppelin, since Zeppelin. Since, Van Halen, since ACDC. You know, yep. I, I think of that, that interview that Jason Newstead did when they played in Russia with ACDC. Can you imagine being at that show? Can you imagine? And how there was a minor tremor earthquake started because of the people jumping up and down in Russia because of ACDC Metallica. Yeah. I mean, come on. So yeah, I, you know, kill them all. It all begins with that, but start, if you really want to peel back the orange and find out where they came from and where their heads were at, at that moment, new wave of British heavy metal, go down a rabbit hole and you will know, and you will appreciate Metallica even more after you hear that stuff. Well, that's great stuff, Jay. Thanks so much for coming on and, and chatting on this. I, I didn't obviously knew. I mean, I knew you knew Metallica well, and that's why I wanted you to come on and do it with us. But I didn't know, obviously, that, you, that you'd seen them at the Aragon of all places. That's amazing. And, you know, you were yeah. just a kid, and those are some great stories. Why don't you tell our listeners where people can find you? Well, I'm Jay Scott. I'm the host of the Hook Rocks podcast, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. You can find us wherever you podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Odyssey, iHeart, Google, Amazon, wherever. I don't know what this is, when this is going to air, but we're approaching our 400th episode. Oh, we're approaching, I'm sorry, our four-year anniversary and our 500th episode. And um, we, we really talk about three different things or three different chapters, I want to call them. We, we do the legacy artists, mm-hmm. uh, interview you know bands from our past. We just um, had on George Lynch a little bit ago. We've had Rick Nielsen on, Scott Gorham, and then Lizzie. We also do a lot of new music spotlights of the new rock and roll that's out there, the new rock music, yeah. which I think is just as good as any period of rock music. And I think people just got to give it a chance. And then we also have music commentary where we talk about different things, whether it's a live album review or legacy of a band that we grew up and loved. And then we also talk about what's going on in the business side mm-hmm. with TikTok and with AI, artificial intelligence and streaming and the business side and all the stuff that's happening. And we also tackle a lot of stuff about audio. We do a quarterly audio episode with my yeah. friend Rob. Talks about 
how to position speakers in your house. And those are some great episodes, man. I love those. Yeah. So we have got a little bit of something for everyone. So hopefully, you know, anyone who's listening, give us a chance. Go ahead and tune in. Mac has been on our show too as well. And loved having him on. I saw him also at Rock and Pod. We had a quick chat at Rock and Pod, which was, was a lot fun. of fun. And glad to do this with you finally and glad to be on your podcast too as well. Well, thanks, Jay. You keep up the great work. Awesome. Thanks, Mac. Well, thank you, bud. Uh, keep up the great work. I will do that, man. Take care. Well, that wraps up our time with Jay from The Hook Rocks, talking about Metallica's Kill em All, turning 40 on July 25th, 2023, if you can believe it. We really appreciate Jay coming on. He's got a great show, The Hook Rocks. He, like you mentioned, he just had his 500th episode and his fourth year. Great work, Jay. Thanks so much for coming on, and, and thanks for all the great work that you do and helping to keep rock and roll alive. Metallica's really a story of just sticking to your guns, man, just hanging in there, doing what you believe in, and the world will come to you. Like I said, 1983, what were we listening to in 1983? Men at Work? Duran Duran, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, maybe Def Leppard, maybe Quiet Riot, but definitely not Metallica. And it didn't sell off the charts. I mean, what did it sell, like 60,000 copies within its first year, something like that? But now it's multi-platinum, just like all Metallica albums are. And it's the foundation, right? It's the first record from what is now the biggest band on the planet in the middle of an 18-month, 72-seasons tour around the world, doing two shows, No repeats in stadiums, not in arenas, not in clubs, in stadiums. And while this may not have been on my radar in 1983, you can't deny its classic status at this point. And I know all metalheads out there are going to celebrate one way or another. So we want to know out there, metalheads, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also DM us on Twitter, which is Ugly underscore Werewolf or ActionJack72, we're on Instagram, we're on the new threads, we're on YouTube, I think we're on Facebook. You reach out to us, you let us know the bands, the albums, the DVDs, the concerts, the books, the rock properties you want us to talk about. Thanks as always to Pantheon Podcast, of which Jay and the Hook Rocks is a proud member, as are we. And thanks, of course, to our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. I don't care where you are in the world, guys. RareVinyl.com will give you 10% off your orders if you put in the code UGLY when you make your order. They've got some great rare Metallica stuff, some found-in-Europe-only Metallica stuff. So go to RareVinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10%. Now, hopefully we're going to have some fun Metallica news to announce in the coming week. Can't tell you any more than that, but there's some stuff brewing that we're all pretty excited about. uh, And I hope to be able to share it with you on the next episode. As far as the next episode goes, it is going to be a doozy. I finally got to take Jackson to his first ever Iron Maiden concert. We flew to Europe, to Amsterdam, and then took the train to Antwerp for his second Iron Maiden concert. And some amazing things happened during and after the show in the hotel bar that you're going to want to hear about. And we're going to have a special guest on the show, a special podcast guest, who is all about Iron Maiden. So until next time, to all you rockers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 